Hello, Detroit and the world. Welcome to a special 100th episode celebration of Authentically Detroit, broadcasting live from the new Stoudemire Wellness Hub inside of Eastside Community Network. Authentically Detroit is powered by Eastside Community Network and sponsored by the Ford Foundation, a content partner to BridgeDetroit.com. I'm Orlando Bailey. And I'm Donna Givens-Davidson. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting our efforts, efforts to build a platform of authentic voices for real people on the east side of Detroit. We want you to like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast on all platforms. We drop a new episode every week, so be sure to turn on those notifications. Today, we are happy to bring to you the long-awaited District 4 City Council candidate debate. This debate is brought to you in partnership with BridgeDetroit.com and the Stoudemire Wellness Hub, housed right here inside of Eastside Community Network. There's a small audience here, and they have promised to remain silent throughout the duration of tonight's debate, except for right now. Please help us welcome the candidates for District 4 City Council seat, ML Elric and Letitia Johnson. The parameters for tonight's debate are simple. Each candidate will have the opportunity to give two-minute opening remarks uninterrupted. We will direct questions to candidates and they will have 90 seconds to respond. We will allow for 30-second rebuttals if a candidate makes a claim at another candidate if time permits. Each candidate will be allowed two minutes for closing remarks. All right, tonight's debate will cover the following topics. American Rescue Plan, uh, financial allocations, recreation, environmental sustainability, city services, planning and development, and public safety. We flip the coin to determine who gets to go first in their opening remarks, and Letitia Johnson gets to go first. Letitia, you have two minutes for your opening remarks. Good evening, and thank you all so much. Thank you to Authentically Detroit for having us. I appreciate you all for being here. I am Letitia Johnson, a proud native Detroiter, grew up on the east side of Detroit and have been here since I was eight years old. I'm a graduate of Kettering High School in 1993, went on to the University of Michigan to receive a finance degree. I have worked in corporate America in finance. I've also worked to bring jobs, secure jobs, in Detroit by negotiating multi-million dollar contracts for the hospitality and tourism industry. For the last 14 years, I've been a very active neighbor in the community. For the last seven years, I have been volunteering on a full-time basis to start and run a nonprofit community development corporation where I work to address the needs of the people. My goal and focus is to continue doing that work, but on a greater scale, making sure that we address the water infrastructure issues, making sure that we take a look at quality affordable housing throughout the district, making sure that I am accountable to all of District 4 residents, and making sure that we can reduce crime together. I continue to be here fighting on the ground and look forward to working with all of you as we work to move our communities forward throughout District 4. Thank you. Thank you so much, Letitia. ML Elric, your opening remarks. You have two minutes. Sure. First of all, thank you very much for having us, Orlando and Donna. Um, congratulations on the 100th 
episode of uh, Authentically Detroit. And uh, thanks everybody for coming out tonight and for watching. It's weird to be uh, against Letitia because we know each other. We both have served in our neighborhood association. Our kids have gone to school together. We've both been working for the community since we got here. You probably know me from TV. Uh, here's what you don't know. I have deep roots in the community. My great-grandfather built a house on Algonquin. If you're looking for it, there's an Elric for Detroit sign in front of it. My grandmother built a, or lived in a house on Camden when she used to commute to clean houses in Grosse Point. That was my Irish granny. And when I moved in in 1999 to my house on Outer Drive, it wasn't very long before I became very active in my community. You've heard about me cutting lawns as the East Outer Drive street rep, and I'm happy to help keep the neighborhood tight. But I've been a coach at Baldick Park. I've been a coach at, Ball, at uh, Mesmer Park. I've been a mentor. I've been a chaperone for my kids' school trips. I've been a sleepaway cabin leader. And let me tell you something, that can be something with the little kids there when you've got a bunch of middle school kids in a cabin. But it's all about giving back to the community. And that's why I'm doing this. Because it feels to me like Detroit has given me everything. And it's my opportunity to give back. I had to give up my job to do this because you can't be a reporter and a politician. But we need somebody who's going to fight for us. We need somebody who's going to bring all those things from downtown back to the east side. We need somebody who's going to fight for honest change, to get the corruption out of our politics. We need somebody who's going to bring opportunity, safety, and accountability to Detroit, to make our streets safe so that kids can play and old people can put their garbage out without getting run over. We need somebody who listens, who knows how to tell a story, who knows how to communicate, who knows how to keep us informed, and who has plans and policies. I have a policy to improve police. I have a policy to stop the flooding and to clean up government. That's just some of where I'm coming from. That's just some of what we're talking about. We're going to hear more about that through the rest of this evening. And I thank you for tuning in and for your attention. Thank you. Sorry, forgot the mic. Um, thank you. Um, so, ML, you, this first question goes to you first and then to Letitia. Again, you each have 90 seconds to respond. Um, what is your reaction to the mayor's ARPA plans? Did he get it right? And if not, what would you change? Yeah, so I don't think he got it right. And I told him that the first time he had a hearing. There is not enough money going to neighborhood stabilization. There's not enough money to help our seniors repair their homes. I just outlined uh, some of the, the benefits of this plan on next door for seniors to get their roofs put on. It's a very important thing. It's a very good thing. But $30 million does not go very far. And when I talk to people, and I've been knocking on doors since January, they tell me they need help staying in their homes. People on a fixed income need to fix their homes. And I think Letitia and I will both tell you there's a lot of porches in this town that need to be fixed. And the problem is that money is not going to go far enough. And we can't afford to have Detroiters who have been through everything we've been through for the last 20, 30, 40 years leave. New people are coming, and I think that's great because we're making a city that people want to come to. But if we lose our legacy Detroiters, the people have invested, the people have made this city what it is that people would want to come to, that is a tragedy. So I think we need to increase that money. I also think we need to increase assistance to businesses that want to open. 71% of our businesses in Detroit are micro-businesses, meaning nine employees or less, meaning annual revenues at $250,000 or less. But here's what's good about little business. It's our neighbors. It's people who we live with, people who we go to school with, people who we you know, maybe have a beer with. We need to help keep that money and that energy and economic revitalization right here in our city. And the mayor said, where are you going to get that money? If you're going to take money and put it somewhere else, I said, take the $50 million out of the internet thing because we can get the corporations to provide us free internet. We need that money to open our businesses and keep people in their homes. Thank you. Thank you. Letitia, what is your reaction to the mayor's ARPA plan? 
Did he get it right? And if not, what would you change? 90 seconds. So I don't believe he got it right. Um, one of the first things I would have done differently is to spread out the community meetings that were hosted so that we could get more information out and get more people involved in the discussion. With over 100,000 people in District 4, there were 176 people that attended the District 4 meetings around how we spend those ARPA funds. We only had 109 people in the district that completed the survey. That's not reflective of the community to be able to say how we should spend those dollars. I agree with ML in that the $30 million that was earmarked for home repairs, not enough. We know that originally it was $20 million and then city council pushed to add an additional $10 million. We've been without grant funding to help maintain our properties for so long that we have properties that are in decay. We have residents that are seniors, many who retired from the city of Detroit, that need that additional assistance to maintain their homes. And I agree, it's roofs and it's porches that need to be addressed. I would call on these billionaires, the billionaire companies to triple what the, the city has put forth to address roofing issues. So I definitely believe that we should have at least $100 million to address roofing and porches. Thank you so much, Letitia. Uh, my next question uh, for you, Letitia, is have you gauged resident priorities on ARPA spending in your engagements in District 4? If so, what are you learning? So most people know that I attend a lot of community meetings throughout the district. Um, the, the overwhelming conversation that's been had around the ARPA funds are addressing home repairs. Addressing home repairs because it's been so long that since we've had funding um, and making sure that uh, residents can remain in our houses. Many of our houses are 100 years old. It's very costly. Wayne State University did a study that talked about how much it costs to maintain our homes, and that's extremely important. We have to stop the bleed. We have to make sure that we stop tearing down houses and that we work to retain houses so that we can improve public safety because the way you improve public safety is you make sure that we have occupied housing. It's time out for demolishing structures. It's time to improve stabilization within our communities, and we do that first and foremost with housing. Thank you, Letitia. Emil, the same question is for you. Have you gauged resident priorities on ARPA spending in your engagements in District 4? And if so, what are you learning? Absolutely. I, I've knocked on 2,000 doors, and, and there's almost one voice that's crying out, clean up the neighborhoods, stop the speeding. There's not enough money going into more and better police. So we have people who can stop the speeding, who can be community police officers, who can be people who know us so that we don't have to rely on technology like green light and shot spotter and, and all these things that you put money into because you don't put money into human beings. No speed hump, and I support speed humps because I've been on outer drive and I'm sick of the speeding myself. But no speed hump can watch out for a kid or know whether somebody's fallen on their porch or whether the door's been kicked open. But the other thing is blight. There's not enough money in here to, first of all, get people in houses and rehab. And I was on Lang on Friday. Four of the people I met on one block were not there four years ago. They moved into homes. They're beautiful homes. You could not tell those homes from homes where people had been there for 20 or 30 years. 
We need to help people get in these homes, get the money to re renovate them, and then we need to get rid of the blight. Now, how do you do that? There's some homes that just can't be saved. Those got to come down now. My campaign, I'm telling you this, as an unemployed dude who has no clout in City Hall, can't put anybody in the paper, can't put a band on TV, we got a house torn down for Ms. Taylor, who's here tonight, just because I know how to get things done in City Hall. That's one house for an, employed, an unemployed guy. You put me on City Council with one of nine votes, we'll get all the bad houses down, and the good ones will bring families back to the city. Okay. Um, ML, how do you plan to increase transparency at City Hall in spending of taxpayer dollars in city government? So, you know, as, as, as a former reporter, I've had a little problem with transparency in City Hall, and I've gotten some, uh, some information that didn't come through proper channels because the channels aren't proper. They don't work right. Let me tell you how I personally will increase transparency. If you're asking for a city record and you request it from my office, you're going to get it. I'm not going to make you file a FOIA. I'm not going to make you wait three weeks. I'm not going to make you hire a lawyer. I'm not going to run you around till you get tired to give up. Now, I am going to redact some information, like somebody's social security number or some things that might expose somebody's privacy or put them at risk, but I will be the transparency councilman. I've been chasing bad guys out of City Hall who weren't transparent. I walked the walk, and if you want to get a city record that I can get my hands on, I'm going to do it. And when I talk to people about budgets, and we talk about the law department budget, and they say we got one or two lawyers who are working on FOIAs and freedom of information requests, the city acts like your access to documents is something they do whenever they got spare time, whenever they can spare a lawyer who's not good at winning lawsuits. It should be a priority. Your access, your right, the documents that tell people how it's happening with our government, that is not the last thing on my list of things to do. It's pretty near the first all right, thank you. Letitia, how do you plan to increase transparency at City Hall in spending of taxpayer dollars in city government? So, so before I answer that question, can we do a little rebuttal on the last response? Yeah, you got 30 seconds. Okay, all right, thank you. Um, so I can't say whether or not my opponent had a house demolished, but what I do know is that proposal in that was passed in 2019 there were uh, $250 million earmarked for demolishing houses, and we are seeing those houses being demolished now. Um, the house that my opponent had demolished was on the demolition list since 2019. Uh, can and I rebut like that? To, yes. Uh, Ms. Taylor, was the house next to you knocked down? Had, had you been trying to knock it down for 10 years? What did they told you before I made some phone calls? Yeah, they gave her the runaround. You can't hear Ms. Taylor because I got the microphone. She tried for 10 years to get it knocked down. I called the land bank. They said it's, on, it's, it's, it's secure. It's not going to be knocked down. It's boarded up. I said it's not boarded up. They said, we'll put the boards back up on it. I said, well, let me show you some pictures of the roof in the back. There's a hole in the roof. You can't board up a hole in the roof. Within three months, Thank you, it was gone. Thank you, ML. Letitia, right. your question is once again, how do you plan to increase transparency at City Hall and the spending of taxpayer dollars in city government? So that there's nice. been a lot of discussion around um, the city clerk's office, the city clerk's office that maintains the records for city council. Um, it is extremely difficult to get information out of the city clerk's office. I'm proposing that we have on the website, on the city's website, access to all information, making sure that we have budgetary information on the site, that we have actual numbers 
of what was spent for every department so that people can see how much money was earmarked for the departments and how much money was actually spent within the departments. I think one of the things that we find difficult is really understanding where dollars are going in the city. So we all just saw that the state of Michigan provided $3.7 million to the city of Detroit for individuals who had water backups and the city's response was that they had spent the money on uh, sanitizing and cleaning basements. The city was already doing that work before those dollars were earmarked by the state. So we need to make sure that those, that $3.7 million went to what the city said it went for, but also making sure that the state gets a report back from the city on where they spent those dollars, because those dollars were specifically earmarked for residents who had backups in their basement. Thank you, Letitia. Uh, you have the next question. You go first on the next question, and that is, from your perspective, um, what are the most pressing issues in District 4? You have 90 seconds. So one of the um, pressing issues I see is quality affordable homes. Making sure that Detroiters in particular have access to home ownership, uh, making sure that Detroiters can afford to maintain their properties. And so within that, jobs. We need jobs within our neighborhoods that people can easily access because we know transportation is an issue for a number of our residents. Making sure that residents have access to good quality food. So many people throughout District 4 cannot walk to a grocery store. They can't bike to a grocery store. So I think it's important to make sure that we have um, farms within our community that we can grow uh, crops within our community and, and provide that to residents within the neighborhoods. I also think it's extremely important that we have recreational centers. Recreational centers so we can keep our young people off of the streets and give them access to programming that helps them to become productive citizens. That's one thing that we can do to help reduce crime. If we just provide positive programming for our young people, if we provide um, mental health resources for people that have mental health illnesses. There, there are a number of things that we need to do, and it's really all about addressing the needs of the people. Thank you, Letitia. ML, same question for you. From your perspective, what are the most pressing issues in District 4? You got 90 seconds. Sure, I, I'm gonna say it all night. Opportunity, safety, and accountability. We need to have neighborhoods where we can work, shop, dine and play within walking distance of our homes. When I got my first job at Johnson's Milk Depot on Mac in 1983, all those storefronts were full. When I worked at the Sherwin-Williams at Kensington and East Warren when I was in high school, all those storefronts were full. We all shopped down the street. We all worked in the neighborhood and we could go to bars and restaurants on either side. So we have to have that. Now why don't we have that? Because we don't have somebody fighting for us. For too long, we've had somebody going downtown, and the only money brought back to the east side was a paycheck and a city car. I want to stop the free city cars for city council members. Hopefully, we can talk about that in a little while. But let me tell you something. I'm a veteran union negotiator. Whenever a deal comes before my council office, if you want something for downtown, for the west side, for Midtown, for Corktown, you got to give me something. This is how it works. Something for you, something for me. But me is you, it's us. It's bringing something back to the east side. I wanna see downtown flourish, I wanna see all our neighborhoods flourish. 
but we can't keep voting for projects for other neighborhoods and not bringing anything back for us. Vote for me and that's going to change. Okay. Um, um, ML, from your perspective, oh, I'm sorry, a large section of the Connor, Gre Connor Greenway was closed and given to FCA Stellantis, replacing a berm and green vegetation with a wall. Should the Greenway be replaced and rerouted, and if so, how? Absolutely. So when, when you have major industrial projects and you lose green space, if you're out in the country, if you use, lose wetlands, it's just, it's understood. I think it's actually required by law. They have to replace it. So any green thing that was taken away to create that plant needs to be replaced. Now, I don't live on Beneteau. I live on East Outer Drive. I think to answer that question, we need to bring the people who are most affected by this, the people who use that space, the people who live near there and say, what do you want brought back? But there's no way you can take away green space and replace it with gray space with concrete. Part of my plan to stop the flooding is to turn our vacant lots into rain gardens, like the one at Hampton, Southampton, and Newport. And so this vacant land we have, we can repurpose this, but we have to replace any green space we've lost. The best way to do that, the first idea should come from the people who are affected. Now I'm happy to lead that effort. I'm happy to bring people together. I'm happy to convene people again. I'm a union official. When I joined my union, membership was 25%. By the time I left, it was 90%. I can bring people together. I can give us a common purpose. And together, we can get something done. That's working for you. But here's the other part that's important. It's working with you. All right. Letitia, a large section of the Connor Creek Greenway was closed and given to FCA Stellantis, replacing a berm and green vegetation with a wall. How should, should the Greenway be replaced, and if so, and rerouted, and if so, how? Absolutely, the Greenway should be replaced um, and rerouted because right now, as it's been indicated, you know, this, this brick wall, it's not doing a lot. It's not doing a lot. We know we've seen odor violations um, as a result of the, um, the paint shop at FCA. We need to put in some green infrastructure I am familiar with the $800,000 that Stellantis FCA is bringing into the community to be able to replace it and reroute it. I think it's extremely important to make sure that the voice of the community is heard as we look to address how you do that. Um, and so I think, you know, that's what we have to do. We have to listen to residents in the community, as I've done over the last 14 years, and help to elevate their voices, help to make sure that how they see living, working, and playing in their community comes to fruition. Thank you, Letitia. Um, our next question is for you. Uh, Detroit was hit hard back in June of 2021 with flooding, but residents in District 4 have been holding their breath every time it rains since about 2014, especially in neighborhoods like Jefferson Chalmers. So how do you plan to address flooding in District 4? Please be specific in how will you pay for it? So my plan has always been um, multifaceted. Um, so one of the things I think we need to do is make sure that our sewer lines are cleaned out. Um, because the city has neglected vacuuming out the sewer lines for so many years, it's reduced capacity because we have a lot of gunk that's built up within those lines. We need to make sure that there are no collapsed lines. 
um, and that the city is addressing that. So putting a camera through the system and identifying where there are collapse lines. The city has already started doing that uh, and putting a liner within the collapse lines to make sure that everything is flowing properly. We all know that the pumping stations failed in uh, June. The Great Lakes Water Authority has a capital imp improvement plan that is to address the pumping stations, to replace the pumping station at Connor Creek. Will that take too long before water continues to back up in our basements? They have the money now to get started, so it doesn't have to take too long. Um, the city also receives $50 million a year from the Great Lakes Water Authority to maintain and improve the infrastructure. We need to get to cleaning those lines immediately. So the dollars are present to do the work. We have to make sure we're putting in long-term fixes, solutions for the water infrastructure system and not putting a Band-Aid on anything. Thank you, Letitia. Uh, ML, the same question is for you. Detroit was hit hard back in June with flooding, but every time it rains since 2014, residents in District 4 have been holding their breath. How do you plan to address flooding finally in District 4? Please be specific, and how will you pay for it? Sure. This is a very personal issue. When the rain started falling and didn't stop, we got two and a half feet of water in my basement. I lost projects that my kids had done when they were real small. I lost things that have been left to me by my grandparents. I'm a guy who saves letters and photos. They're all gone. And what was the city's answer? Once in 500 year flood. I think it was actually twice in seven years. So maybe that last 496 years went real fast, but we're just gonna move past that. What we did that day, because I am a problem solver, and because I do know how things work in City Hall, and I do know who has the answers, we started making phone calls. And by midnight on June 26th, we announced a plan calling for DWSD and GLWA to provide backflow preventers at their expense to all of our homes. Also to provide sump pumps so when the water comes in, it goes right back out. After doing a little more research, because remember, we came up with a plan in 24 hours. It's now a plan that the city is trying to implement, by the way. We called for green infrastructure, using the vacant land around us to help provide a place to hold that water that their system can't hold because we don't have time to rebuild a new system. We need to keep our basements dry now because when I go down the basement, I see nothing. And guess what? That's a good thing because I expect to see water and we can't have that. People in Jefferson Chalmers have been putting up with this for 40, 50 years. It has to stop now. We have a plan and I've been going to DWSD, GLWA meetings every week you, to ML. make sure that they know Thank you, we're ML. fed up. And so many of our residents have continued to face water backup since June 26. I'm not a proponent of spending $600,000 to install backflow preventers in the 200,000 houses that we have in the city of Detroit. I think it's a band-aid. It's something that will not solve the problem. I have spoken to residents in Victoria Park and they say they didn't see flooding in their basements until 2011 when the Great Lakes Water Authority took over our system. We have to address the infrastructure issues. If I may? Yes. Um, so you said it would be 600,000, but was it to put the backflow preventers in there? It's roughly $3,000 per house. And if every house in the city of Detroit receives one, then that's $600,000. Uh, I mean, 600 million, okay. sorry. Well, so the last flood we had in 2014, DWSD and GLWA spent 
$250 million to make people whole, except they didn't. They only gave us a little bit of the money that we lost, and now they're going to spend that much more because we have 32,000 claims. To me, we spend what it takes to fix the problem. And guess what? It's cheaper to fix the problem than to put us through all this trauma, to see all our neighbors move away and then have to pay for it anyways. We need to invest in Detroiters. We need to invest in each other's. Thank you, Emma. Thank you. And I'll continue to can, say that's not a fix. Can I, Thank you, Letitia. Can, can I, um, I have a follow-up question to ask regarding that. Has anybody heard, and I, I apologize if, if this is uncomfortable, but has anybody heard anything about the Northwest Interceptor and the, um, the impact of the Northwest Interceptor or nor, the, the Oakland-Macomb Interceptor, I'm sorry, and the impact of the Oakland-Macomb Interceptor on some of the flooding problems? If so, what is your analysis and what do you think about um, doing anything regarding that? And I'll start with you. I believe, Letitia, you started, you, you answered first, and so Letitia and then ML, and then we'll go back to our schedule. Sure, so um, yes, I am familiar with it, and we've realized that the more populated Macomb and Oakland counties become, the more of a negative impact that receptor has on Detroit. The proposal really is, and I've talked to the Plumbers Union, who's given me advice and suggestions on how to address this system. It is to make sure that the Great Lakes Water Authority and collectively that we as a region push for them to have more retention basins within their county so that it holds, it retains their wastewater so that when we have inclement weather and we are facing three inches of rain in a short period of time, it does not overwhelm our system, causing the backups that we've seen. That within itself is a highly politicized issue, but we have to get past it unless we want to displace residents in the city of Detroit and particularly off the water. Thank you. Emil, do you, um, have you heard of the Oklahoma Interceptor? And if so, what are your thoughts about proposals to address that concern? Sure. My understanding from talking to a former water department engineer is the real problem is the Interceptor they didn't build. That would have alleviated a lot of this problem. That would have taken this water that we can't handle on this end of the system out of the system. But here's the problem. We don't have it. So we need to come up with a solution. Converting vacant land into green infrastructure, into bioswales, into rain gardens, into retention ponds is not a Band-Aid. It's a solution. It's a cheap, affordable, expedient solution to get this solved now. We can fight with Great Lakes Water Authority for the next 10 years. We can get tied up in court. We can do all that stuff. In the meantime, it's going to keep raining, and the next 500-year flood may be next month. We need to get working on solutions right now. And if you want to join the solution, go to change.org. You will find a petition there. A thousand of our neighbors have signed it that outline our plan to stop the flooding now. We would love to have you sign that because when I go to those board meetings, and I'm the only one who goes to those board meetings, I'm telling them we're not going away until you solve this problem. And if you think I'm going to go away before our problems are solved, I guess you haven't read my work. I guess you haven't seen me because I'm not just a watchdog. I'm a bulldog. And anybody who messes with you, I'm going to chew their leg off. Thank you, ML. Because this is such a pertinent issue to our community, I just have one follow-up question, and then we're going to go back. And that is, are you proposing that we do green infrastructure in communities like Jefferson Chalmers and Jefferson Village, which are floodplains? Do you have evidence that green infrastructure will work in those communities? And if not, what are you proposing for those communities which are most heavily impacted by the floods? 
So I'm first this time? Okay, sure. Yes, I mean, we already see. What, so if, if, if you're watching this, District, district 4, the east side, is a big, sprawling district. It's, we have wonderful neighborhoods up by City Airport. We have wonderful neighborhoods down by the canals. Jefferson Chalmers is already turning vacant land into paradises. There are gardens there. There are farms there. Everything that we're calling for is happening right there. But part of the problem is the water goes through us down there. We have land within walking distance here that we could convert to green infrastructure and take that pressure off the system so that when it whooshes and rushes past us down to Jefferson Chalmers, they don't have more than they can handle. And yes, we need to fix the pumps. And yes, we need to fix the pumping stations. And I was the one who found out that the pumps were not working like they should be. And I told people about that. And I went to the Great Lakes Water Authority meetings. And I went to the DWSD meetings. And I said, you need to have redundancy with your power supplies. You can't allow those pumps to go down. Because when you screw up, we pay the consequences. And if you want to stop Detroit from being depopulated, the mayor talks about wanting more people. Let's start with keeping people. Let's start with giving people a reason to stay here. And one way to do that, take the vacant land, make it beautiful, and keep our basements dry. Letitia, um, do you believe that green infrastructure will address the flooding problems in Jeff Jefferson Chalmers and Jefferson Village, two neighborhoods which are uh, currently flood zones? I believe that it can help, yes. Um, so we know that right outside of, on the west side of FCA, they have a bioswell there. So Beneteau did not get impacted the way some of the other communities did throughout District 4. But we also know that the parking lot at FCA did get flooded. So that speaks to how much green infrastructure do we need to have in order to prevent the backups that we've seen. It would take a ton. I have for three years help to disseminate information to our residents on ways that we can help retain water. I've been encouraging residents to install rain gardens, to install rain barrels, uh, bioswells, and things of that nature. So it isn't new to me. I think it will help. But of course, we need to make sure we address the actual infrastructure. Um, and as we have this inclement weather, we, the, the bioswells, the rain barrels, the rain gardens, those things can help, help take water out of the system and keep it from our basements. But we also want to make sure that we are not oversaturating our soil and seeing trees and things topple over. So it's, it's a complex situation, but there are multiple things that need to be done in order to prevent the situations from continuing to occur. If I could have a brief rebuttal? Sure, go for it. And I don't know if it's technically rebuttal, but I think what you've heard is we agree on a lot of the solutions. And so I invite you to join me at those board meetings to call on these folks who are not acting fast enough. I'm to, let's get them going. I'm looking forward to being the council person and pushing them to do it. So we'll, we'll, we'll agree we'll work together then. Well, I'm not waiting. I'm doing it now. But we, I'm not okay. waiting either. Okay. Uh, we have just two and a half weeks before the election. So once the election takes place, we'll get to work. We'll I'm, get to work and make sure I'm that we hold them accountable for doing the work. I'm extending Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. All right. Donna, you have the next question, question okay. number seven. How do you balance environmental justice with jobs when evaluating corporate expansions like Stellantis and Crown Enterprises? And Mel, you have the first response. I'm feeling a little waterlogged. Uh, let me get back onto dry ground. First of all, we know we need jobs. Coleman Young was right when he said there's not much in Detroit that can't be solved 
with a good job. But here's the problem. A good job at the cost of our health, that's not a solution. That's a sacrifice. And we can't sacrifice our neighbors for economic gain. We can't say that, you know what? Your life just isn't worth as much as my life because you live closer to the plant and I live further away. So we need to have all these things evaluated. And before we sign off on these plans, we need to make sure that we understand what the impact is. And if we go ahead and we put these things through, and this is where you want the accountability. Emil, I'm going guided. to interrupt you for one second. I'm sorry. We're going to give you an opportunity to rebut. We've lost a signal on the Facebook stream. And I was rolling. Just, it okay. just happened. It just happened. We're going to try to get it reset um, really quickly because it is not broadcasting and we want to make sure that the folks in district four can hear that so just give us a second sorry for the technical difficulties folks it happens <laughs> all right we're back donna can you repost the question all right i am so sorry our apologies to our facebook streaming audience we lost the signal but we are back all right so ml you had started to respond i don't know if you want to start from the beginning you were rolling um how do you balance <laughs> environmental justice with jobs when evaluating corporate expansions like stellantis and crown enterprises okay you know, once you're 53 years old and you get rolling, it's hard to get that head of steam up again, but I'm going to do my best. Um, first of all, we can't sacrifice health for jobs. That's not a solution, but we need jobs. So before we do any deal, we need to make sure we fully understand the environmental impact, and we have to communicate with those who will be, first of all, in the impact zone, and second of all, with everybody else in the area to find out, is this worth it? How do we feel about this? We need to engage the public more. But let's, let's skip ahead, just in case people heard most of my first answer. Once we have a deal, once we've decided that we like what's been offered to us, this is where you want the accountability guy there at the table for you. Because I'm the guy who makes sure you keep a deal. As a union official, when my bosses watched on a deal, I called them back to the table. We took a job action. We said, you don't get to make a deal with us in good faith and then break the deal because we kept our own of it, own part of it. People in Detroit know about the clawback. We found out the hard way when the city went bankrupt. They said, we're going to claw back some of the benefits that you were promised. The same thing has to happen to developers and people who tell us they're going to keep our neighborhoods safe. If you do not keep your promise, we are going to claw back. And I got some sharp claws. And we're going to make sure you, first of all, undo the damage you did. And second of all, make sure you offer us something to make up for your duplicity. If that's internships for our young people, if that's adopting a park, we can come up with a solution, but if you break a deal, I'm going to be right there on your doorstep. And you know it because you've seen me there. All right. Letitia, um, how do you balance environmental justice with jobs when evaluating corporate expansions like Stellantis and Crown Enterprises? So we agree. Um, we, we can't sacrifice our residents' health for jobs. Um, we know that we definitely need to have jobs and good quality, high-paying jobs for our residents but we also want them to be healthy. So we need to make sure, just as I went to city council to require that FCA puts in a violation notification system so that when the odors from the, the paint shop are moving into our communities and can increase or, and impact um, asthma, people who have asthma and um, health situations, that we are addressing that, that we're making sure that state regulators are out and finding the companies, that they are also holding them accountable for 
making sure that, they, that we're not negatively impacting the health of our residents. That's first and foremost. And so my husband actually works for FCA at uh, Jefferson North, and he and I have had this conversation as well that he has asthma. He's worked in the paint shop, and I asked him, did you as an employee even wear a mask when you were working in the paint shop? He said no. So we need to make sure that our residents that are working within these establishments are also being taken care of and that we have good, healthy workplace environments. Thank you so much, Letitia. Our next question uh, is for you, starting with you. Uh, the mayor has outlined strategic investment areas for a few planning studies and development projects in District 4, but the district, of course, is much bigger than those few neighborhoods. How would you invest in steer investment in those neighborhoods? So I think one of the first things we need to do is focus on stabilization, um, and that first and foremost is on housing. So. When I was on the board, when I was a vice president on the board of East English Village Neighborhood Association, that was one of the things that I worked on. I created a plan for all of our block captains to be able to hold property owners accountable. We have to start doing that block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood, because what we see is a lot of people violating the uh, vacant property ordinance. Legally, in the city of Detroit, a residential property cannot sit vacant for more than six months. But in the city of Detroit, we know we've seen houses sit for years and no one's done anything about it. So we have to hold those property owners accountable and I would like to use the power of my office to go after them one by one, institution by institution, and make sure that either they rehab that house and get it occupied or that we take it back from them and we make sure that we are giving uh, priority to Detroit residents to acquire those houses. Thank you, Letitia. Okay, ML, the mayor has outlined strategic investment areas for a few planning studies and development projects in District 4, but the district is much bigger than those few neighborhoods. How would you steer investment in those neighborhoods that are not targeted? So first of all, I think it has to be organic. We have to hear from the neighborhoods what they want and what they need. We've had too many plans coming from downtown that don't fit our needs. I think if you followed what's going on with the Fitzgerald project on the other side of town, the city came up with it, they came up with all the things they're gonna do, they're gonna do it this way and that way by this time and that date, never happened. District Detroit, oh, we got this great plan, we're gonna do this way, we're gonna do that way. Nobody in the neighborhood was talking about what they want, we, didn't happen. We need to be organic. We need to find out what our neighbors wanna do in their neighborhoods. And I completely agree with Letitia, we need to be on these landlords who are derelicts. When I knock on doors, my first question is, what can we do to make the neighborhood better? And there's something called the nuisance abatement program. There's a house at Somerset and Casino that neighbors have been trying to get dealt with for a long time. I called on it like I called on Ms. Taylor's house. They said, we don't own it, so there's nothing we can do about it. So don't send us the pictures this time. We do have the nuisance abatement program, which means we can go after the landlord, and if the landlord doesn't work with us to improve that property, we can take that property. That house is now in the nuisance abatement program. And just today, I heard about uh, from a man in Gratiot Finley who was concerned about squatters in a land bank house. We told him, empowered him, who to call and how to go after that. He called, he left the information that was requested, and today those squatters are gone, that house is boarded up. That's because our neighbors told us what they needed to make the neighborhood better. 
And we took that back to City Hall and told them what they needed to do. We didn't wait for them to tell us what we needed done. Thank you. Thank you, ML. Uh, Letitia and ML, I want to re-ask the question that I just asked because I feel like a lot of residents were looking forward to hearing the answer to that question. And I don't think the question, <laughs> I'm going to take journalistic privilege and say, <laughs> I don't think the question was adequately answered. There are targeted strategic investment areas from the mayor's office. East English Village is one of those areas. Jefferson Chalmers is one of those areas. These neighborhoods are getting planning studies and they are getting development, catalytic development projects, as well as streetscapes on their commercial corridors, right? District 4 is bigger than East English Village and Morningside and Cornerstone and Jefferson Chalmers. For the residents that reside outside of those targeted neighborhoods, how are you advocating for resources and investment and planning to take place in those neighborhoods. Letitia, I'm going to give you 90 seconds. So I've sat down and met with uh, Reggie Smith, who's here, uh, and he owns a business on Whittier. We've talked about getting individuals from the community that are interested in being entrepreneurs, making sure that they have access to those properties. So I think there has to be a holistic approach. We have to look at each community individually and identify what it is that people want to see within their neighborhoods. I've spoken to Sandra Turner Handy and talked to her about what is it that you'd like in your community. And I shared with her one of the greatest resources that we can have is one another, making sure that we know what's going on in the community and they know what's going on within city council. So every neighborhood has its own plan. I think it's difficult to say, okay, we're just going to do all of these things because even when we look at the areas that do have the strategic neighborhood funds that also includes Gratiot 7, we know that our residents feel like their voices weren't heard throughout the process, that the city has identified what it is that they want to do within our communities and that they are choosing what they'd like to do. So I think it's important to make sure we know what residents are asking to have done within their respective area and then we devote resources to address those issues. Thank you, Letitia. ML, I'm going to uh, repose sure. the same question to you. Uh, District 4 is bigger than the strategic investment areas. Jefferson Chalmers, East, East English Village, Morningside, and Cornerstone, and residents that reside outside of those are wondering when will planning come, will, will, when will inve catalytic investment come? And my question is, how do you plan to uh, advocate an investment in planning in the neighborhoods outside of the current strategic planning area? Sure. So, so I know, I know Seven and Gratiot very well. I used to take saxophone lessons there. And if you ever heard me play saxophone, you know why I became a reporter. But that neighborhood does not look like it did, and it needs to look a lot better. And while we plow all these resources into these designated areas, we use up precious limited resources. But it's very important to understand that what's happening on East Warren is happening with $5 million of money from Blue Cross Blue Shield. And I understand that the city does not have enough money to fix all of the places we want them to fix as fast as we want them to fix them. So let me tell you how I approach that. Strategic partnerships, creative problem solving. When I started coaching at Baldock Park in 2005, the city was not cutting the grass. Eagle Sports, a faith-based charitable sports and tutoring program said, we are gonna get something going over there. Most of the recreation we have in our district is because of nonprofits. The Eastside Youth Sports Foundation, that they, they grew up and they did something there. 
If we work with the neighbors to identify what we want to do, we can find partners who have deep pockets, who have community reinvestment obligations like banks do, where they can take their money, not our money, which we pay in taxes, their corporate dollars, and repurpose them, direct them to the places we want that to happen. East Warren would not happen just with city dollars. We need to find those corporate partners and identify projects with the neighborhoods. We can say, you got the project, we got the partners, let's get it done. Thank or, very, very quickly, um, I know Orlando re reposed and rephrased the question, but you know, I think it's important that we make sure we uplift and elevate that we need to have occupied housing when we look at these commercial corridors. So much of the dollars that have come to our communities has been focused within the commercial corridors, even the dollars that were allotted in the um, East English Village or Cadu, East Warren area, they pulled those dollars from neighborhood stabilization and put them back into the commercial corridor. I think it's extremely important to make sure that we don't neglect the residents in the community. So even though um, Orlando wasn't happy with our, our responses, I think that's extremely important and we need to make sure we uplift that. Time. Emily, would you like to respond to that? You didn't like my response? <laughs> no, because he reposed the question uh, to both of us. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, um, we can move on. I'm, I, I, I can't move on because <laughs> I think I, I want to clarify some things, right? Right now, the city of Detroit, um, at least in the past few years, has had a policy where new housing development would not be supported by the city unless it went into those neighborhoods, even if it was being sponsored by an external sponsor. Right now, the city of Detroit is raising money from all of these sponsors to go into different neighborhoods. And so my question is this. If I'm a taxpayer and I live in a neighborhood that is not targeted, let's say Chandler Park, and I live in Chandler Park neighborhood, and there's a taxpayer who lives in another neighborhood, does, is it economically just for the city to be raising money and steering resources to one community and not the other? In other words, can I get a tax break if I live in those neighborhoods, or is there something city council can, be do, can do to advocate for the people who have been left behind because there's just not enough resources to go around? And so I'm sorry, I have to ask that question because I think it's a question on the ears, minds of so many Detroiters. I have been to evening city council meetings and seen people line up down the hall, just waiting to ask that question, when is it going to be my mm -hmm. turn? And so I'm hoping to get an answer to that question. I think that is the spirit of what Orlando is asking you to respond to. Yes, we can do self-help. Yes, we can do some things ourselves. But the question is, how should city government treat people who live in different areas? Letitia and then Emel, can you respond to that? So it's, it's extremely important for me as a city council candidate and soon to be city council woman uh, to make sure that I know what's going on within our communities. I'm not sure how the city currently identifies the neighborhoods, but we know all of our neighborhoods have challenges, have things that need to be addressed. As a 14-year community advocate, I have been elevating the voice of the people. I will continue to do that and bring resources. Quite honestly, I believe that because of my work in the nonprofit sector, that I'll be able to bring some philanthropic dollars directly into our community that bypass City Hall. That there will be people that I've already developed relationships with who will come to me and say, hey, Letitia, we know you're closely connected to the communities in District 4. We have dollars to be able to put into various areas within our communities. I think that's one of the values that I have with the experience and background that I have to be able to identify and uplift 
um, the voice of the residents throughout the district and make sure that I'm not only sharing those conversations with the philanthropic community, but also making sure that the mayor knows what's going on in District 4 and that we can make sure that every neighborhood throughout District 4 and throughout this city has a plan. Thank you, Letitia. All right. Oh, okay. Um, ML? I'm sorry. Did you want to it's a long question, but we know that the city has steered resources. We know that the city has said that housing development has supported housing development in some areas and not others, even when they're using um, ex external dollars. And the city is actively raising funds to go into some neighborhoods and not others. Because taxpayers, everybody has to pay, I think, the same property tax rate, income tax rate, no matter where you live, the question is, is it fair, and if not, how would you use the power of your office to, um, to demand fairness on, on part of all of the residents who live in the city of Detroit? Sure, so I think first of all, it would be irresponsible to promise every one of our neighbors we're gonna do everything they want right away. The, the resources are just too limited, and, and, and we've had too many people in City Hall who've been lying to us, who've been stealing from us, who've been making promises that they never keep. But I don't want to be beholden to City Hall. That's why I'm talking about strategic partnerships. That's why I'm talking about creative problem solving. If there's a neighborhood that's got something that they want to do that's ready to go, if there are neighbors who have come together and say, this is important to us, and we can't get the city to zero in on this and to spare some of those dollars, I certainly will fight to provide that resources. But just because the city says, we're not giving it to you, I don't quit. I try and find a way around that problem. I try and find people who are ready to do that. I'm happy to find churches, nonprofits, foundations, corporations, you name it. People who say, we agree with this plan, this plan is viable. We saw when, when Obama restarted the economy, the, the, the money went to project, uh, shovel-ready projects first. So if you're ready to go, I'm ready to work with you. And if you're not, I'm ready to work with you to get to that point. But we can't just rely on the money coming from downtown because that's why we're in this predicament, because the money just doesn't come to the east side. It's time to send somebody there who's going to make it come, and if it doesn't come, it's going to find it somewhere else. All right. Thank you, ML. Donna, it is your question. All right. Can you react to the way, ML, thank you for that. Can you react to the way the streets are being redesigned on Jefferson and even on Connor, as well as the inclusion of bike lanes on most commercial corridors? Um, do you like it, or what would you change? So I guess my question is, I don't mean to be a smart aleck, but what is the plan? I mean, they do this, they do that. Then they do that, and they tell us this is great, and then they replace it with something else, and they say that was bad, and this is going to be better. I was like, but I thought that was great, but now it's bad. So when I look at what they're doing on East Warren and what I see what's happening on Livernoy, if we're going to have bike lanes, and I like bikes, and I ride a bike, and I think it's one way to rely, uh, lessen our reliability on vehicles, and, which are expensive and smelly and all those other things, it has to be a dedicated bike lane that is separated from traffic, both for the safety of the bike riders, for people crossing the street, and for the motorists. I know, I know I'm not the only person who's tried to figure out where do I take a left? Is it, do I go through this part of the bike lane? Do I go past the bike lane and come around? That's dangerous, that's a recipe for disaster. So I think what I see in the plan for East Warren, where there's gonna be a dedicated lane with landscaping on either side of it, that feels to me like a safe and beautiful thing. And guess how they came up with it? The first bike lane, they just said, this is what we're going to do. It's great. You're going to love it. It wasn't. We don't. 
The second time around, they gave us options. They gave us alternatives. They had hearings. Letitia and I both went and testified or just, I guess, commented on what we thought was the best, most attractive, most feasible plan. It has to come from us. It has to be organic. But, uh, but I do think if we're going to keep everybody safe, cars and bikes don't always mix so good when you just have a little green paint. Letitia, can you react to the way streets are being redesigned on Jefferson and Connor, as well as the inclusion of bike lanes on most commercial corridors? I, I agree with ML. Um, I don't know the plan on East Jefferson. I know that it's being redone, but I can remember going to the meeting with Jefferson Chalmers residents when the city first came out and said, hey, what do you all think about these bike lanes? And resoundingly, the folks at the meeting said, we don't want them but they still popped up. Uh, and, and then shortly after, they popped up on East Warren as well when there was never a meeting in the community to discuss design layout or anything. So what I have seen is the design is horribly flawed. Number one, we need to take a closer look at where we put the bike lanes. I personally think East Warren was a bad idea, a bad location to put bike lanes because it was only a four-lane highway plus the, um, the center lane. And while a lot of people said, okay, it's going to slow traffic, well, it hasn't actually done that. I've had experiences where people, if I'm driving the speed limit, people go around me in the center turn lane and almost create horrible accidents. I've seen vehicles parked in the bike lanes because they're too wide. I've seen blind spots within the bike line. So if you ever go to make a right-hand turn and there's a vehicle coming, you better be careful because it's, it's been designed horribly. I made sure to uplift all of those issues at the meeting that we have with uh, the mayor's office as it relates to the bike lanes on East Warren, but I think it's always important to make sure the community is involved. Thank you, Letitia. Letitia, the next question is for you first. Is Detroit prepared for climate change? If not, what are your biggest concerns? Um, we've, we've seen that Detroit is not prepared for climate change. One of my greatest concerns is that the Detroit River is going to rise, going to elevate so much that it decimates the communities that are on the water. Um, and so we need to make sure that we are, as we talked about, addressing our water infrastructure issues, making sure that we can retain as much of that water and have it soaked into the ground so that it does not overflow the Detroit River and cause us to lose houses. I really fear that we could have a Hurricane Katrina Ward 9 issue in the city of Detroit if we don't take a look at climate change and start to do something to slow the process down. Thank you, Letitia. ML, is Detroit prepared for climate change? If not, what are your biggest concerns? So I, I don't want to make this a Detroit issue. Is the world prepared for climate change? And the answer is absolutely, we are not. And we just got rid of a knucklehead in Washington who thought burning more coal was the solution. So I'm glad that's been taken care of. But the real issue is some of these problems we can't solve by ourselves. The hodgepodge way of putting up seawalls in Jefferson Chalmers, the tiger dams. It's time for us to bring the Army Corps of Engineers in here and bring some federal money in here and say, please come up with a plan that works for everybody in this part of our district. Let's get that fixed so we can preserve those homes and give people the quality of life and, and the security they deserve. But I've talked about the green infrastructure. I've talked about using this vacant land that so many people for so long have seen as a curse. 
I think it's time for us to recognize the blessings among us and to say that while other cities are built out where they can't do anything because they're building McMansions along Metro Parkway where, you know, one nouveau riche guy opens his window and smashes another guy's window. We have vacant land here that we can use to try and mitigate this, to try and use the earth to heal the earth. And I actually think Detroit can be a green leader. We can be a model for the entire nation. And I encourage you to go see the Hamilton Rain Garden. I encourage you to go take a look at what's going on Oakman Boulevard, where they're taking the water and they're putting it in the median and they're storing it until the system can handle that rainwater. We are making strides, but I'll just tell you something else that I've heard from talking to DWSD. If we're going to get this green infrastructure installed, they need somebody on council who will vote for it. It's not a Band-Aid. I'll vote for it. Thank you, ML. I want to ask a follow-up question around environmental sustainability. Both of you cited, uh, you know, uh, the stormwater and how that can devastate our city. But temps are also rising. I mean, I think we hit 80 degrees just this week. Uh, just this week. And with high temps, we know that that puts uh, especially our seniors who are immobile at risk, heat island effects for neighborhoods that don't have Absolutely. trees. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about what you would do not only to address flooding, but rising temperatures uh, that continue to happen and become more normal in our society? Emil, we'll start with you. Sure. So uh, we all know that, that one of the benefits of trees, other than being beautiful, is that they absorb carbon that they eat this up. And my house was built in 1929. It is not air conditioned. And most of the homes that we visit when we walk and talk to our neighbors, they're not air conditioned either. And so what we need to do is bring the temperature down. Now that's nothing where we can flip a switch. And that house on Algonquin that my great grandfather built just before the depression has a big beautiful tree in front of it. But a lot of our neighborhoods don't have that green infrastructure, that planting that can absorb that. You know, this is, we have to start now. I, I, if there's a solution that would lower the temperature tomorrow, I'm not aware of it. But the electrifying mojo used to say, if this journey of a thousand miles is supposed to start, we got to start with a step. So let's take a step and let's start planting things. Let's use our vacant land. And when we do things like redo the streets along East Warren, let's make sure that we're making room for trees and things that will grow and that will take the temperature down because that concrete, that's like sitting on a griddle. Thank you, Emil. Letitia, the same question for you. Uh, we're having longer uh, summers and temps are rising and the heat, the disparate effects of the heat island effect and not enough uh, tree coverage to provide shade. Um, do you have a plan or do you have uh, any points of advocacy where you can help bring down the temps in Detroit? Where I can help bring down the temperatures? Um, so I do, I do like the idea of planting trees. Um, I think we also have to be mindful of creating resilience centers throughout our communities to be able to provide some relief to our residents. Um, because within that, we also see that we're using a lot of electricity and we're having more power outages. Um, and so I think it's important that we, you know, really start to implement alternative energy sources using solar energy. Um, and, and, you know, making sure that we have those resiliency centers that can accommodate our residents who cannot afford to have um, cooling centers or air-conditioned houses. And so it's, it's extremely important just to make sure that we have access to refrigeration when we, ha when we lose power for people that have uh, medical conditions who have uh, insulin or things of that nature that have to be refrigerated. 
uh, one of the other things I think we also have to be mindful of is how many um, homes that are actually being used as grow operations and pulling that electricity. So we need to make sure that we have infrastructure that is put in place to be able to accommodate us so we don't continue to lose electricity as well. All right. All right, thank you. So, Emel, this question is for you. Um, Mayor Duggan has announced a $30 million home repair program. Is that enough money? And if not, what, what, what amount of money would you recommend? No, $1 billion. But $1 billion isn't realistic. So we're going to have to work within the $426 million I think he is not using to help balance the budget. $30 million, the city's already acknowledged it's only going to fix 1,500 roofs. And... We have thousands of roofs. I think we all know that the blue tarp is the unofficial roof of the city of Detroit. We gotta get rid of those blue tarps because the reason why is if you can't have your roof secured, you can't get a loan to fix the rest of your house because the banks know if the water gets through the roof, the house gets destroyed and their equity is gone. So what we need to do is we need to take some more of that ARPA money and we need to repurpose that and put it into home repairs. We absolutely have to do the steps, we have to do the roofs, we have to do everything in between. More fuel, more energy efficient windows, we need to insulate homes. And there are some things that we can do, there are in Jefferson Chalmers, there's solar arrays that have been put out there. They've been put out there by nonprofits that are providing power to people in Jefferson Chalmers. I have solar panels on my house that help reduce our energy bill. So there, the, the truth is there's not just one simple solution. We have to work with nonprofits, foundations, charities, and corporations who are willing to be a part of the solution. I know it sounds like the same answer over and over again, but truly, the solution to solving our problems is for all of us to work together and also to bring in new blood and new resources because, quite simply, the city does not have the, t the money to do what needs to be done. Letitia. Is there an afford, I'm sorry, Mayor Duggan has announced a $30 million home repair program. Is that enough money? And if not, what would you recommend? It is not enough money. Um, and my initial thought and, and proposal was that they were going to at least earmark $100 million for the home repair program. Um, and then we saw 20 million and then city council pushed it to 30 million. Um, but I'm saying 100 million consistently so that we realize that we have to continue to provide resources to our residents to be able to address these issues so that we don't continue demolishing houses. When we look at $30 million, we're talking about 1,500 to 2,000 houses that are going to be addressed, and we have 200,000 houses within the city. I know all of them are not in disrepair and in need of a roof, but a fair percentage of them are. The other thing is that when people have leaky roofs, they cannot get grant funding through Wayne Metro to be able to address some of the other issues that they have within their homes. So the roof is first, I think the porch is second, and then we start to do work in the interior of these houses to make sure that um, people have the ability to maintain these 100-year-old houses. Thank you. I have a follow-up question to that. Um, in June 20, on June 26, we had the flooding. And we had a lot of people who lost furnaces, hot water tanks, and whose water problems in the homes, there's black mold in the homes. Do you think that FEMA, DWSD, GLEWA, and SIR, State Emergency Relief Funds, did enough 
to address those problems? And if so, how would that impact your um, perspective on spending for home repair? And I'll start with you, Letitia, and then Emil. So absolutely not. They have not done enough. Um, we're still waiting to hear from DWSD and GLIWA as to whether or not they're going to provide some resources to residents who were impacted. The city said they went through and sanitized and cleaned basements with the additional $3.7 million that came from the state. But I know that there are residents who reached out to me because we did a robocall saying, if you, all, if you are a senior or disabled and you need some assistance cleaning out your basement to give us a call, and we spent uh, time off the campaign trail to help 66 residents throughout District 4, there are still people who are waiting for a call from the city to help clean out and sanitize their basements. I still continue to hear people say, we have heavy items in our basement that haven't been removed. We know the city didn't do enough. I would have said, okay, let's open up an emergency hub so that residents can come here, we help them fill out the paperwork, but that we also recognize that is this a FEMA issue or is this a water infrastructure issue within DWSD and the Great Lakes Water Authority? I think we're trying to push it off on FEMA. FEMA has come in and done a, a horrible job with trying to make people whole, but then the state came in trying to help with that. And unfortunately, we didn't utilize the dollars effectively. All right, Emil, this is for you. Um, after June 26, after the floods, June 25th and 26, a lot of people lost hot water tanks, furnaces, they have black mold in their homes, the water hasn't been cleaned up. And um, has Gliwa, um, FEMA, <laughs> I'm alphabet just doing, soup. Al alphabet <laughs> soup, have they done enough? And if so, how does that impact your thoughts on spending those home repair dollars? Sure. So I've been concerned about how FEMA is treating all of us since this happened, and that's why we have distributed thousands of flyers since June to people telling them how to get their claims into DWSD, how to get them into Great Lakes Water Authority, how to get them into FEMA, and not just telling people where to go, who to call, where to find them online, but what to do when they say no. Because what we found is that you can be denied sometimes three times before you get some grant money from FEMA. We found that if they offer you too little money, you can appeal. Now, many of our neighbors feel like, well, if I got money and I appeal it and I lose the appeal, they'll take the money back. They won't. So what we've done is what I've always done as a union negotiator. I never take the first offer, and I always ask for more. And we have people coming up to us saying, do you have any more of those green sheets? And we kept updating them and updating them. We've got them on our website, ml4detroit.com, because we're trying to help people get that money from FEMA, because you're absolutely right. FEMA, at a minimum, should provide you with enough money to replace your furnace and your hot water heater. And they even told us they'd replace our drywall and some other stuff. Well, they sure didn't, and so we're appealing that. But in terms of home repair, we need to get people's homes secured and warm for the winter because it's coming. And I see I'm almost out of time. But whether we use home repair money or not, we need to find a way to help people who are disabled, seniors, or unable to move those heavy items out of their basement, get them out of there. Tucson Knight and his boys did a lot of that work. I applaud them, and I applaud Letitia and her supporters for doing that. Thank you, ML. Uh, the next question, Letitia, you have first go at it. Uh, and we're in the home stretch, ladies and gentlemen. We only have about four questions left. Uh, the next question, Letitia, is there an affordable housing crisis in District 4? If so, what would you propose to make housing more affordable? I think there is a um, 
affordable housing crisis in the city. Uh, I think we have seen a lot of our communities gentrified more recently, where property values have just skyrocketed and made it very difficult for a lot of people to purchase a home. Uh, there was a house on Alter Road that a gentleman just sold for $126,000 right across the street from Skateland. And so I think, you know, when we look at that, some people say that's great. You know, property values are going up. It is great, but when you think about the Detroiter who averages $23,000, $26,000 a year in income, it makes it challenging for them. It makes it extremely challenging for so many Detroiters to purchase a house. I think we need to right-size the auctions and the houses that we sell through the Detroit Land Bank Authority and make sure that we stop allowing speculators to be involved in the auctioning process by doing what the federal government does when they sell houses, giving owner-occupants a two-week priority so that they're not bidding against investors who have access to greater capital, making sure that Detroiters, owner-occupants are competing with owner-occupants because they are likely going to pay a reasonable amount for the house knowing that they still have to put in a decent amount of money to repair these homes. Uh, and I have a follow-up because this is something that uh, we get all the time at Authentically Detroit uh, for uh, the both of you. Uh, reports from the Detroit News and other sources reported, I think it was a couple years ago in 2019, that Detroiters were over-assessed in our homes by $600 million catapulting uh, the tax foreclosure crisis um, in the city of Detroit. And Detroiters want their money. <laughs> they want their money back. Um, how do you propose redress for residents affected by that $600 million, perhaps more, over taxation in the city of Detroit? Letitia, we'll start with you, and we'll go to ML right after. I didn't get to answer the last question. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was That's okay. I'll do it very quickly. We have a problem nationally. Yeah. And it's because of the mortgage crisis, because all the greedy banks who came in here and tried to make people deals that they couldn't keep, and, and, and shame on them. But the first part of it is stopping what I call the Detroit land gank, which is where we have all these properties that have value that aren't, on, aren't for sale and that aren't made available to Detroiters first. So to me, the Detroit land bank should serve Detroiters first and make those homes available to people who live in the city. And, and I know you got a big question, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. But, um, but if you want to get to the overseas, I, I can either start with defer, that if you I'm want. I'm sorry or, about that. My apologies okay. for that. But I would defer to you to answer the question first, and then we can go back sure. to Tisha if you want to. Sure. So, so I was on the phone just last week with the professor from Kent College of Law in Chicago who did the study that the Detroit News relied on to determine there was $600 million in overassessment. Now, Letitia and I live in East English Village, and we've been told they can't even tell how much they overassessed us. So we're not just candidates who want to solve this. We're victims, too. So first of all, I think we need to figure out exactly what happened and how much we're owed. Second of all, I think we need to find a graduated way to make people whole. First of all, to spread your, your, what you're owed over time so that we don't bankrupt the city again. But in talking to this professor, the thing that concerned me the most was she said, and she studied this for years, she said, the best we can come up with is to help the people who were most affected. In other words, if you got screwed the hardest, we'll try and help you, but everybody else, life's tough. 
And her solution was to take $100 million from the Ford Foundation and George Soros and some other people. And I said, I'm happy to take $100 million. It doesn't have to come from Detroit taxpayers because if we're using our own money to pay ourselves back, that doesn't feel like somebody's taking care of us. But it's not enough. So here's what I would like to propose. And I know I have 15 seconds left. But it's time for a new grand bargain. We bailed out the Art Institute. We bailed out everybody else when we had a big problem. We know how to do a grand bargain. It's time to do it again because I want my money back. Letitia, the same uh, follow-up question for you, Detroiters. Over assessed by upwards of $600 million, do you have any plans for redress? So unfortunately, the, um, the assessor's office is responsible for all of that, right? Um, the assessor's office says that the city only retained 23% of those dollars. So the city is only responsible for giving back 23%. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that because the assessor's office is the one who identifies how much our property taxes should be. Whether or not they're disseminated to the DIA, to the schools, or whomever, the city should be held accountable. So how about we take some of the American Rescue Plan dollars and help to address this issue? There are people that lost their property because they were overtaxed and then their home was taken from, from them because they didn't rightfully owe those tax dollars. That within itself has stripped so many African Americans of home ownership and the ability to build generational wealth that we should all be disgraced by this. We should all be trying to identify a solution to get these, these, these families back in the city of Detroit and get them a house. And because we have so many houses that are sitting in the land bank's inventory that are just sitting and rotting, we need to figure out a solution where we provide them with a house and some dollars to rehab that house so we can bring them back into the city of Detroit. Thank you. Um, ML, what is your vision for public safety in District 4? Sure. First of all, I, I've lived on East Auto Drive for 22 years, and, and one of the things that I'm so grateful for is that I haven't lost a child or a pet to all these people driving like maniacs down East Auto Drive. And when I launched this campaign, we knew opportunity would be important. We knew safety would be important. And accountability, of course, you know what I do with accountability. You cheat the people of Detroit, I'm going to try and make you explain why you think that's right. But as I talk to a lot of my neighbors, speed humps, speed humps, speed humps. It's unbelievable how many people want speed humps. So we support installation of speed humps throughout the city. But as I said earlier, speed humps, they don't know your kids. They don't know whether your door is supposed to be open in the middle of the afternoon. And that speed hump is not going to call for an ambulance if you trip and fall. We need more police and we need better police. We need police who are trained to be guardians and not warriors, who need to understand that they're part of the police force, peace officers and not soldiers. And I've been pushed around by the cops and in the end I was told it was my fault. I still never figured that one out. But we need to improve the training, the pay and the benefits so we have the best officers we can have and we've got to stop the suburbs from stealing our cops. We have police forces from the suburbs who are waiting at the academy graduation to take those officers that we paid to train. That's just not right. And if you want to get trained by us, you have to make a commitment of three to five years so you get to know us. You re return that investment we've made in you. I see my time is up, but if we train you, you work for us. Letitia. Let the suburbs get their own. 
Thank you. Letitia, what is your vision for public safety in District 4? So I, as we said, we live in East English Village, and I know that our neighborhood police officer lived just around the corner from me. So I, I was so saddened when he retired because the way he policed was completely different from other neighborhood police officers because he was from the community. He understood the fabric of the community. He knew that when somebody called him to address an issue, he knew whether or not it was an issue for the greater community or there was just somebody complaining about a resident. So he addressed it maybe differently than most police officers would. I would love to support more residents from our community policing our community. I think the, one of the ways that we can help do that is to help reduce crime because I have an 18-year-old son and today what I say to him, you should become a Detroit police officer. No, not with the crime rates that we have, that we've continued to have over the years. So we need to make sure that we create um, job creation programs so that we employ more people to keep them from criminal activity. We also need to make sure that we support expanding the co-response program that the city and the Detroit Police Department has implemented in some precincts throughout the city where we have a mental health professional that works alongside of Detroit police officers to address people that have mental health issues and not criminalize them. If, if I may for just a minute? Yes. It, it's not a rebuttal so much as an acknowledgement. I'd like to acknowledge Jim Broxton former Detroit police officer, retired. When residency was lifted, he could have left. He never left. We all know the best thing is to have a cop in your neighborhood. So, Jim, don't go. Thank you. Go ahead, Dan. Sorry. I picked up my phone instead. I think I'm talking on the phone. Anyway, Letitia. Are we boring you, you Dana? No, 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 okay. not at all. I just forgot which microphone I was supposed to be using. <laughs> it's been a long day. Um, Letitia, um, when we talk about policing, and we talk about crime and public safety, you talk about reducing um, crime in the community. We know that there are some people who believe that we need to reallocate fiscal resources to more prevention. And so the question I have for both of you around that is, how do you do that? Letitia, first, and then ML, please answer that question. So we implement various programs. So right now, when you look at the Detroit Police Department's budget, they continually have a surplus because there are 204 vacancies within the department. We can utilize those resources to implement uh, different types of training, making sure that police officers have cultural sensitivity training, expanding the Explorer program that the police department has where they engage young people um, and interact with young people to make sure that we work with people to keep them on the straight and narrow. As I indicated, the co-response program, not criminalizing people that have mental health illnesses, but working with them to address those issues. Uh, and making sure that um, we have these job creation programs, even if that's within the police department, we're introducing policing to young people to encourage them to become police officers. So it's all, all of those things can help to reduce crime and address um, the situation and make sure that we are also supporting residents within the community. Okay, ML, is the city um, 
targeting the right amount of money for policing, and how would you reallocate, you've heard of the calls for reallocating some of the funds so that we could spend more on prevention. What would you recommend? Sure, so like many, questions, many solutions, there's not a simple one. Um, when I started in City Hall in 2001, we had 3,000 police officers. Now we have 1,700. So taking money out of the police department is not the solution. But hiring police is part of it because, as Letitia points out, there are a lot of vacancies. So you, what, what happens with that money? We make police work overtime. So now we're paying a time and a half, which is very expensive for us. The police are stressed out. They're running back and forth. Whenever we see them, it's never our best day when we call 911, and it's rarely their best day when they come. So we need to make sure that we do have services not only for citizens, but also for police officers to make sure that they are whole and healthy. But we do need to diversify the job classifications within the police department so we have more social workers, more therapists, more people who are trained in de-escalation. When I call for more and better police, I want police who come to us with degrees with bachelor's degrees, with uh, associate's degrees. Wayne State University has two police officers, POs, who have PhDs. Well, I wish we could get them to work for us, but we don't pay enough. So we need to do that. But the other solution, and this is, this is ultimately what it is, is we need to get people jobs. We need to make sure we support people who have mental health issues, people who have economic issues, because I don't think somebody is born to steal, but I think if you can't get a job and you can't pay your bills and you have no option but to steal, or you think you have no option but to steal, you will steal. So we need to put people to work and return opportunity to our neighborhoods. Thank you, Emil. All right, we are on our last question, Letitia. This last question uh, is for you first. Do you support the study of reparations by a task force as outlined and proposal are on the ballot right now? Why or why not? I do support the study on reparations. Um, because I have personally seen numerous people displaced from the city of Detroit. As I already talked about uh, property values, rental rates dramatically going through the roof over the last five years, that has dis displaced a number of Detroit residents, longtime Detroit residents. Um, and I also support it because we know that there are systemic issues that um, perpetuate oppression within the city of Detroit. Now, let me say this. I do have some questions about that proposal that's on the ballot, um, and I will identify the answers before I actually vote on the proposal, but some of the, the questions that I have are who actually identifies who the committee members are, how are they identified, selected, elected, um, whatever that process is, and also um, wondering if there's a finite amount of time where they do the study and then work to implement the ideas. But I also recognize that Proposal S is the proposal that sets up the ability for reparations to be implemented. So without Proposal S, there's no access to funding to be able to implement anything that comes from the study. Thank you, Letitia. ML. Do you support the study of reparations by a task force as outlined in Proposal R that's on the ballot right now? Why or why not? So I absolutely support the study of how we're going to implement reparations, but I don't understand why we need to vote on it. Don't we all agree to this? Do, do we need to have an election for this? Why isn't our city council right now convening a task force? Why do we have to wait? The reason I'm running for city council, we have a city council that doesn't want to do anything. When they had Gabe Leland, a crook, sitting next to him for three years, and I pointed it out, they wouldn't even say, there's a crook sitting next to us. 
we can do this right now. And I think that part of the solution, and, and I'm not going to propose a solution, I'm going to work with people to come up with a solution. With the people in this room, with Chancellor Curtis Ivory at Wayne County Community College, just, we've sat down and talked about this. How can we come up with a fair and equitable solution? And I read a story in the Detroit News I thought was great, where, uh, where a gentleman from, uh, from Burt's Marketplace said, I want to use this as an opportunity to create generational wealth. I want to use whatever money we come up with to create scholarship funds, home ownership funds, entrepreneurial support funds. And for those people who lost their property at Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, you are owed cash. But for other folks, let's put that money to work where the entire community can benefit from it. And I look forward to getting to work on that as soon as possible, but we need city council members who are going to take action. Uh, enough, enough fiddling while Rome burns. Let's get going. Okay. Thank you, ML. Thank you. It is now time for closing remarks. And candidates, you have two minutes. ML, you're up first. Well, thank you very much. I, I, um, boy, I'm glad I'm a candidate and not a voter, although I, I've already picked my candidate. But you, you got two people here who really care about their community, who are deeply invested. Uh, Letitia's been a community activist for 14 years. I've been coaching since my girls were little. My daughter Emily's here. She wants to be a teacher, so I'm going back 18 years. 14, 18, it doesn't matter. What you've got is people who care and who want to give back, who have given up their jobs to give back to the community. But I want to talk a little bit about something that concerns me because I hear a lot of, uh, of exclusion. Uh, people trying to say, well, Detroit's only for this or Detroit's only for that. And, and, and they want to draw a circle around people. And, and to keep people out. And what I want to do is I want to draw a circle around those people so that we're all inside my circle, so that we're all working together on solutions. So that if you have a better idea than I do, I'm going to take your idea. I'm sorry. I just took that from Father Duane, who told me the circle story. So I'll tell you, I just stole it from Father Duane because it's exactly right. We need to be working together to make things better. I want to go to City Hall because as much as I respect Letitia and her work, I'm the only candidate who can get the crooks out of there, who can make sure that we get things done. I'm the only one with the experience who's walked those corridors, who's seen the deals, who's caught the rats, and there's more in there, and who can get us what we need back here in the neighborhood. My roots go deep. My passion is strong. I'm doing this to serve you. I believe that this is about public service and not self-service. I believe that public servant is backwards. It should be servant for the public. So the reason I'm here is because I want to make the east side better. And if you're doing things downtown and you think all the money should stay downtown, claw back. Remember that word, because I'm going to use all my claws to bring something back to the east side. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you, Orlando and Donna, for all the work you're doing. And everybody who's watching, thank you so much for giving us this part of your evening. All right. Letitia, your closing remarks, please. To authentically Detroit, to everyone who's here in the audience, to everyone watching on Facebook, thank you all so much for your time and attention. So when you look at the two remaining candidates, a lot of times we sound similar. I think one of the things that we have to look at is the work that has been done. I stand and talk about the 14-year commitment that I have given to this community that I continue to give to this community because I have an amazing husband who helps to take care of the household. 
For the last seven years, I've been fighting on the ground as a full-time, committed, passionate volunteer and making sure that I can answer the call of our residents. When we look at what's happening in City Hall, we need to make sure we send somebody to City Council who has empathy for our residents, who's going to make sure that City Council members work for the voters, first and foremost. We have the Inspector General's Office, the Auditor General's Office, the Board of Ethics, and the Ombudsman who can work to root out corruption, uh, who can work to make sure that our City Council members are held accountable for everything that is being done. I will be and have been accountable to my neighbors, to residents throughout District 4 and various volunteer efforts that I have taken on. I've served on the Board of Zoning Appeals, making sure that your voice is always elevated when we decided who, which businesses would open up within our communities. I will continue to do that. I will work with everybody within our communities because I know it takes for all of us to come together in order for us to move our communities forward. I have always represented the voice of the community. Residents within East English Village, residents within East Canfield Village, residents in College Park. We will all come together, work together, and create a phenomenal District 4 because I look forward to supporting the work that you all have been doing and the work that we will do collectively. Thank you. All right. Thank you. That is going to wrap up. Wow. That is going to wrap up uh, this District 4 City Council candidate debate. Can we give a round of applause for both of the candidates one more time? Thanks to the candidates for being here tonight. We would like to thank BridgeDetroit.com and the Stoudemire Wellness Hub for their partnership on this. Until next time, everyone, we want you to catch the wave. Good night, everybody. Woo! Great job.